Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, our guest is Sasha Skoblik. She's a contributor to the New Republic. Uh, she's written for New York Times uh, and for Reader's Digest, a whole bunch of publications. She's also the author of Unwasted, My Lush Sobriety. And we're going to bring her on in just a minute. First, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org. Our guest, Sasha, is with us. We're going to bring her on right now. Sasha, how are you doing this evening? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, uh, it's great to have you on the show. I got really interested in your stuff when I was looking at your website, and I saw you know, that you had uh, done some positive reviews of Ann Fletcher's book, Inside Rehab, um, that you were in favor of substitution therapy, and I realized, well, this is an interesting person. This is not a 12-step fundamentalist, but it's someone who uh, engages in 12-step programs, I know, but you're also broad-minded about many different uh, aspects of what's going on. Um, why don't we start a little bit with your personal story, if you want to share some of that with us. Sure. Um, you know, it's, it's a familiar story. I was um, a cool party girl, or so I thought. I was really... Um, excited about my life when I was young and I thought that I was having more fun than most people and that I was more exciting than most people and that my world with drugs and alcohol was so much more colorful than other people's and um, I I was really uh, hating other people but I looked down on them and uh, and it it was awful and uh, i got into some scary situations because I was making terrible choices, um, mostly because I was drunk. Dr- drinking really is my downfall. I mostly only did drugs when I was drinking <laughs> because <laughs> that's what, how, for me, that's still my drug of choice. Um, and, and like uh, cocaine so that I could stay up drinking longer. <laughs> you know, that was really still my thing. Um, but what happened was, uh, despite having these scary experiences where I was with, you know, really disreputable people and sketchy neighborhoods, um, one day I went to a friend's birthday party at a bar um, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It was a Sunday. At the time, I was working at Reader's Digest. And um, I had told my boyfriend at the time that I would be home for 60 minutes <laughs> uh, on Sunday evening. and. I walked out of a different bar at 7 o'clock the next morning. I had Mm -hmm. just blown through bar to bar to bar. I ended up in some after-hours place, which is, you know, illegal and shady. And when I walked out, I didn't expect to see the sun. I just 
thought it was still night. And uh, for some reason, that was the moment that just rocked me, the surprise of seeing the sun. Um, mm-hmm. Really, uh, that, was, that was the moment where I didn't think in that moment I have to quit drinking altogether, but in that moment I thought something's really got to change here. And I did end up uh, quitting altogether. And we can talk about why that is my path versus other paths. But, um, yeah, so my story is um, pretty much a party girl gets her comeuppance. The other thing is I uh, I wanted this great career, kind of the career I have now, but I was, I was stagnating. I wasn't, you know, going for it. I wasn't getting great assignments, and it was really hard to write when you're wasted and you're supposed to be doing something smart and intelligent on the page. So I, I feel like actually everything I was doing when I was drinking was contrary to what I wanted to be doing for real in life. And, uh, yeah, and luckily... I got sober at 32, and I'm so grateful that uh, I did at 32 and uh, didn't lose any more years. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that's something I think a lot of people find uh, to be true is that their alcohol, for you and me, alcohol is really the, the drug of choice, or you know, the other substance, it winds up taking up so much of your time not only the time spent, uh, you know, under under the influence, being intoxicated, but then there's the time you spend recovering, and pretty soon you don't have time left to do all those other things that you want to do. Exactly, exactly. When I first uh, got sober, I was very surprised by Saturday mornings because that was, uh, you know, part of my world's experience on Saturday mornings was simply continuing to sleep, and so to get up on a normal Saturday morning and see people jogging and having breakfast and walking around this um, kind of stunned me. I just couldn't believe these people had that kind of energy. <laughs> mm. It was now, a foreign was, landscape. Mm-hmm. I was curious when I was reading your story about, because you, you told that story that that was your night that you stayed out all night and got home at 7. And did you make it into work that day or did you just call in and decide no? No, I did go to work. I mean, this—it was insane. I went to work, and um, I immediately wrote my uh, craziest, wildest friends and said, "I can't do this anymore," because I wanted to kind of enshrine it right away before I changed my mind. I, you know, kind of like when you try to quit smoking, you tell everyone that you're quitting smoking, so they give you a hard time if you uh, lapse, and uh, so that's what I did, and then I I also um, saw my boyfriend, the one who I, you know, I said I'd be home early evening to meet, and uh, he didn't hear from me all night, so he was worried and freaking out, and uh, he just looked at me and said, what are you going to do, and <laughs> and and uh I had met him for lunch during the day at Reader's Digest, and I lost it, and then I called him sick. But I did a full morning at Reader's Digest <laughs> in my half-cooked-out, crazed, hungover mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. So when you quit, um, how long was it between the time that you stopped drinking and the time that you started going to AA meetings? It was several months. Um, 
Yeah, it was several months of just uh, not drinking, which w it was difficult, but it continued to be difficult, you know, even after a 12-step program, obviously. <laughs> um, I remember... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, just keep going, just keep going. Okay, I remember someone... Um, in, early in a 12-step meeting said to me, oh, my gosh, you went, you know, your first three months without a 12-step program, like, I could never do that. And it made me feel like <laughs> maybe I wasn't really an addict then because, oh, you know, maybe a real addict wouldn't be, have been able to do that. Um, and so, I, you know, I had to kind of wrestle with that. I think... Really, I knew I was an addict because for a long time, before I, for years, I had tried a variety of, you know, kind of step-down programs or my own interpretation of, like, one glass of wine, one glass of water, one glass of wine, one glass of water. I only drink on weeknights mm -hmm. or weekends, you know, that sort of thing. And I just, I failed. Every time I just had a sip, I was off to the races. <laughs> so, so for me... Um, I, ha I had to just completely stop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, if you're familiar with NISARC, the National Epidemiological Study of Alcohol-Related Conditions, you know, it says about half of people with alcohol dependence, what they call alcoholism or addiction, with dependence, about half will quit completely and about half will cut back to uh, non-problematic levels. Um, right. So, I mean, it, both outcomes are very common, and some people find one much easier than the other. Now, I found it, you know, easier to step back with alcohol, and my preference is to drink one night a week, and I usually stick to that. Once in a while, I do two nights, um, but then that takes up too much time again, so pretty soon I'm right back to one night. And I like to waste all that time. You know, the other things with television... <clears throat> Television, I decided I needed total abstinence. Um, basically, I've been abstinent since about 1990 from television. I will not allow one in the house. Um, okay. I, don't, I don't, if I'm at my friend's house and my, you know, my friend's kid is watching cartoons and I watch cartoons with him, I don't count that as a relapse into television viewing because that's more <laughs> like, <laughs> but if I have one in my house, I'd watch the damn thing all the time and get sucked in and not be able to do anything. Um, you know, cigarettes was another one for me. Uh, abstinence from cigarettes is the best way. I, I right. had a scar now and then, but uh, for me, that's a whole different experience. So it's not total abstinence from nicotine, but cigarettes, no. Completely agree. It's it's very easy to fall back into a smoking habit. Um, and so, you know, I mean, you you were saying about the fifty percent of people uh, need. Uh, total abstinence and other people can, uh, you know, manage their drinking after they kind of come to the realization that, you know, drinking too much isn't working for them. And um, mm -hmm. I think that, you, you know, there, there, it's a spectrum, obviously. We all have different brain chemistry and we all react to these substances slightly differently. And what we do know, I've, I've talked to Dr. Nora Veltel at um, the National Institute of Health where mm -hmm. she runs the addiction center. And, you know, she can actually see through brain imaging what happens, the experience of addiction in the mind of an addict. But, you know, it, mm -hmm. it varies greatly from 
person to person and drug to drug, but she can see uh, kind of the pleasure center lighting up or desiring it. She can see uh, this happening before the person is even conscious of it. So I, I think that's what where I was. I think I was a true addict where if I had even a little, uh, my brain just snapped to attention and wanted more. Uh, so for me, uh, you know, abstinence was the way, but I know a lot of people who have been able to control their drinking, and I know a lot of people who stopped drinking just on their own, no program, no nothing, and, you know, just decided mm-hmm. that's a better way of life. So I, I think there's a lot of ways to experience uh, a reduction in drinking, and I'm a huge proponent of it. I think, you know, just societally, it's, we're, we're way inundated with alcohol messages, and uh, it's a really dangerous substance. And I think that because um, we we kind of sensationalize it and make it cool uh, and market it to children, <laughs> that we've got a much bigger problem than a lot of other countries that are more lax about it, have a different attitude about it. Well, alcohol is definitely a very dangerous uh, substance. It's the number two killer worldwide of all drugs. Of course, you know what number one is? Uh, heart disease? <laughs> uh, of all drugs, not of all... Uh... Oh, sorry. Um, I got to guess crystal meth? Tobacco. Oh, cigarettes, of course, of course. Sheesh. Uh, yeah, tobacco. Tobacco uh, kills about twice as many, two or three times as many as all the other drugs, including alcohol combined. It's an absolute. Yeah. I, uh, no, yeah, I'm they... embarrassed. I remember Ed Koch. You know, he was really anti-smoking, and uh, and uh, in New York City, in former mayor of New York City. And I remember those statistics when he would, you know, say that that was like a a street drug. It might as well have been. It was such an epidemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, see, it's more addictive than uh, anything else. It's the hardest to quit. It's got the lowest remission rate. It's got the longest uh, half-life. I was just looking at all this stuff the other day. I'm going to talk about Gene Heyman in a minute because you, you talked about his book in one of your articles. But he's uh, looked at all this stuff, too. You know, It's like 26 years is the half-life for a nicotine dependence. And then the next one down after that is the half-life for... Alcohol dependency is 14 years. And then for cocaine and cannabis, it's like six or eight years, you know. And, you know, that's how long it takes half of people to quit. So, I mean, nicotine, okay. and it has the lowest lifetime remission rate of less of uh, about 80-some percent. You know. Amazingly, alcohol dependence has a lifetime remission rate of over 90%. Over 90% of people addicted to alcohol, eventually, they either quit or moderate. Uh-huh. Uh You know, it doesn't surprise me because uh, that what happens w- with alcohol in particular is that, especially because it's legal and available, it's uh, it's very easy uh, to not stop. You know, it's very easy and acceptable to continue drinking. So I think that's part of the reason it's such a huge problem. And... um. You know, I also think that um, alcohol stops working for people at at some point and their desire to stop is almost overwhelming. Uh, I think that um, 
I think that it's amazing when people put on their their own, and 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 I think they're they're very smart when they can see what's happening to themselves and act on it rather than kind of waiting to make a mistake, bigger mistake um, or more of a mistake. Um, for me, my father is a sober alcoholic. He is very involved in 12-step, uh, unlike me. And and he, um, you know, got sober in his 50s and ha- had a very different kind of life experience than I did. And I, I remember thinking when I qu- was deciding to quit that day, that day that I walked out of the bar and saw the sun, um, I remember thinking, I should do this now, not later. And uh, so I think that a lot of people can learn from what they see on television, what the portrayal of addicts or whatever. I think that they can see it coming and try to, you know, stop while they're ahead. I always tell people, you don't have to wait until you're, like, face down in a public park with your pants around your ankles before you quit. Like, there are steps way before that and signs way before that that you should step, you know, or cut back. Um, I wish I'd cut mm-hmm. back while I still could. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> With my inner addict. <laughs> well, you know, that's a that's a whole other question. Uh, but you know, there's there's so many factors involved, and it's not just you know neurobiological factors, which I think get too much emphasis sometimes, but there are social factors, there's family factors, there's work factors, there's tons of factors, and, you know, you have to weigh everything together in the balance when you look at what, what people actually do in real life. You know, some of the, re- some of the most severely addicted uh, alcohol addicts wind up moderating um, mm-hmm. in spite of the fact that the odds are against them, and they, but they just say one day, I don't want to do that anymore, I don't want to quit. I want to moderate, and I don't care what anybody says. Um, and some people say, you know, well, my whole family hates alcohol. I'm the only one that's drinking here, um, and everybody's miserable. It's, everybody would be much happier, and I'd be much happier if I quit. And so, that, you know, all these factors go together, I think, in making the decision. Um, and I think it is a decision, and, you know, I think that's where a lot of uh, – Confusion comes in, you know, people like uh, Gene Heyman, uh, Jeff Shaler talk about addiction being a choice, and I think it's not so much that addiction is a choice, addiction is more of an accident, but quitting an addiction is where I think the choice lies. And people quit when Yeah, they I, to quit. I think I agree with that. I mean, my, to me, um, that was always one of those paradoxes of the 12-step program that um, we don't have power over our alcoholism, and yet a choice every day not to drink. So, I, I you know, I, that is paradoxical. And I, I, I guess that um, I think you're right, that that, that is a, a melange of different factors go into addiction. And for some people, it's different than others. For some people, it's a reaction to, like, childhood trauma. Uh, for some people, mm-hmm. it's a pure genetic desire. For some people, it's... Um, like me, I think I just bathed my brain in it enough during college that by the time I got out, I was already gone. Um, you know, you know, overdoing it can lead to addiction. And so there are a lot of bites at this apple. Not everyone comes to it the same way, and so not everyone's going to recover the same way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious about your family background, because you said your father hasn't drank since, uh, since, since how long? Right. It's been... She's close to 20 years now, um, at least 17 years he's been sober. And, uh, and, and yeah, and he's, um, 
he's amazing, and he is really involved in the 12-step program and completely works for him, and he has a community of wonderful people who look out for him, and I'm really grateful for that. So how much of you and your mother, does your mother drink, or did she ever drink, or what was that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, I mean, my mother, it, you know, can have a, my mother drinks um, in, in the sense that she is not, non-drinker, but she's certainly a light drinker. I don't think uh, she could be described as ever even having um, uh, a problem with it. She's, you know, a casual drinker, one glass of wine here and there. I'm very jealous of that sort of thing. So do you think that uh, your family had an influence on your on your drinking when you were growing up? Or do you think, uh, just curious, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, certainly when my dad was kind of bottoming out, uh, I I saw that, and um, it was a stark vision of a future that I could have if I continued down that road. And I didn't know it at the time. This was when I was in college, and so 1920. But when I quit drinking at 32, I remember being like, that's where I'm headed. Now I realize that that's where I'm headed. Um, So there was definitely an influence in the sense that I saw the kind of drinking I didn't want to do. I did not feel I was influenced to drink, however. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, in my family is not like the tossing beers around at the barbecue family. We (laughs) We were either completely wasted or not it was it was never and it was never adorable so um i don't feel like yeah i was influenced i think my mother would be horrified if she thought i was drinking underage or something i mean i was a good girl until i went to college so (laughs) i don't feel like they influenced me to drink but they definitely had an influence in my desire to stop drinking well i know my parents definitely had a huge influence on me uh, my parents and all four grandparents were religious teetotalers. They thought you went to hell if you would drink. And, uh, you know, they also were creationists and thought you went to hell if you believed in Darwin and evolution. So I was definitely uh, rebelling against all of that, you know, be- uh-huh. becoming a young young communist. And, uh, <laughs> I know, uh, I'm drinking. right there with you. <laughs> Oh, I read that part. Uh, we're going to talk about Hunter Thompson pretty soon, too. Um, so definitely I had this huge amount of rebellion, and I, it still influences me. And the whole thing, I mean, that's why, well, I've talked about my experience in 12-step programs before. I tried to go to them. I kept hearing that I was powerless, that alcohol was powerful, that I needed God to swoop down and rescue me because God was all-powerful, and I just... The more I heard that, the more I wanted to drink until, you know, I was abstaining when I started going to AA meetings. By the time I left, I was drinking a liter of whiskey per day. And I had to check into detox, and I said, this is not what I need to hear ever again. If I'm going to get better, I need to stay away from this message. So for me, definitely, I had to get away from that whole thing. But, Um, no, that's really interesting. I mean, I think that's that 12-step can be a a kind of provocateur if <laughs> to a lot of people and you know and what you did in Fletcher and her book uh, Inside Rehab you know does mm-hmm. a great job of of showing the many different routes you can take to get sober and one of them 
is just simply aging out. You know, you get older, you get mm-hmm. more mature, and you kind of make a decision that this is not working for you anymore. And it's, like, completely normal to age out. It's just, you know, sometimes in the folly of youth, we take it too far. But, um, yeah, not every ending to alcoholism, I think, is not, needs to be a completely uh, dramatic exit. <laughs> Some of them can be soft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and our brain, our brains continue to make huge changes as we get older. I mean, we hit maturity mm-hmm. at about age 25, but even after that, the brain still continues to change. And when you look, people get le- more and more risk averse. They're less and less likely Absolutely. to want to do crazy shit. When you when you're 70, you know, you sound say, "Oh, I want to buy a Harley Davidson chopper and join the Hell's Angels." You know, not not quite the, what you want to do when you're 70. <laughs> Um, and we we see that. So you know, and we see when people leave college and uh, start you know working, get married, have kids. That's when we see the greatest dip in the number of people that are drinking addictively, because the highest mm-hmm. number of people drinking addictively is about age twenty or so. Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, that was definitely the the age when it started. And 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 then, and you know what? I wasn't different from anyone else, and that is why it never occurred to me that I was drinking too much because we're all drinking that much together. It was just <laughs> that when we left college, I kept going and a lot and most drinking altogether, but they stopped uh, kind of the lifestyle of college and they got jobs and they got up early and I kind of didn't. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, but I, it does. It, you know, it can it can grab you early in a different way than you know later. And I think you're right. Well, as we get older, we get more risk averse, and those, you know, everyone has different levels of that as well. Mm-hmm. Risk aversion, well, that is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You know, the well, the crowds that we hung around with in college. I think both of us were heavy drinking crowds. And, you know, Marlette, Alan Marlette, if you're familiar with him, he did some studies of uh, college students. He found out most of them weren't really drinking as much as they had the reputation for. In fact, Mm -hmm. he used that when he developed his uh, basics program for uh, college intervention. He said, "Uh, here's the average amount that that your fellow students are drinking, and it's like four beers a week. And here's the amount that you guys are drinking, which is like 12 beers on Saturday night and, mm-hmm. you know, four beers a night every night of the week. And it's just like, you know, this is not typical college drinking because, you know, we didn't want to hang out with those guys. At least I didn't. Right. Right. I didn't either. And I didn't realize at the time that they were in the majority. I remember taking those quizzes, you know, like um, – mm-hmm if you've had more than four drinks in one night, check this box or whatever, like to determine if you were an addict. And I remember being like, this is so lame. These people have no idea what college is about. Obviously I have more than four drinks in one night. And, and, you know, I, I would fail that test uh, even before I think I really became addicted. I would have failed that test because that was the culture of my crowd, at least in college. Mm-hmm. Although I also think that test is quite bizarre and just reflects puritanical American attitudes that are just unrealistic. Absolutely. Um, it's sure, it's very puritanical. 
Yeah, lots of kids when they're in college, as we say, on Saturday, they're going to have 12 beers, and uh, then they're going to, you know, maybe hit their senior year and say, oh, Jesus, I can't mess around like this anymore. I have to study. i got to graduate, and i got to right. get a job. And, you know, they say, oh, I'm not going to have 12 beers Saturday, every Saturday night anymore, maybe, uh, maybe after finals. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I know people who have done that who have said, I'm not going to drink for the week before this exam. And, you know, uh, and I would always kind of be like, okay, well, then I'm going to go out with these other people. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I mean... I think that I got to the point anyway where for me it was no longer a choice and, and that is what I think true addiction is. When you look at the brain science, there is no choice involved. I mean, you're literally desiring the substance of choice before you're consciously aware of it. So, you know, that to me is uh, different than the people who can say, I'm starting to get out of control and I'm going to stop. I think they're not addicts yet. I think they're dangerous drinkers or alcohol abusers, and I think that that's the absolute best thing to do. It's it's a lot better to get control of it if you can and uh, and do it earlier than later. Um, I, you know, I, 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 like I say, I went to this point of addiction where for me just a little bit of a drink or even just walking by a bar, to be honest, if we're being really honest here, <laughs> um, just mm-hmm. triggered mm-hmm. me too, too much. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, just to the listeners, I guess what I'd say is if you can see your behavior, you know, going in that direction earlier, just (laughs) cut back. You don't want to get to the point where you have to quit like me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You want to be able to do what, like you do, like to be able to have drinks once a week. Oh, but, you know, I was clearly, by everybody's standards, totally alcohol-dependent, especially, you know, well, probably the worst was at the point where I was talking about why I left AA when I was drinking a liter of whiskey every single day. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. I did that five days straight, and I was, uh, you know, ready to have a heart attack. I was uh, ready to go through severe withdrawal, had to check into detox, get detox from Valium, with Valium, uh, you know, have them take my blood pressure. And, you know, there was no question. There was major physical dependence. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that people can't necessarily get control. As I said, you know, about half of the people... I totally that, agree. I totally agree. Yeah, no, I don't mean the, to imply that it was impossible. It, I, I, I'm too scared of it uh, to try, but... <laughs> um, you know, obviously, you're, you know, you're living proof or whatever. I just, uh, I just want to be careful around that issue because I do think there are a lot of people who can't uh, make that choice and who can't control it any longer. And I don't think that mm-hmm. means they have to accept God or a higher power. But I do think that <laughs> for some people, you know, a chronic alcoholism is, you know, in their future, and that, you know, for me. That's something I want to be just really mindful of um, when I speak publicly because I, I do encourage mm-hmm. people to assess their drinking early, and I think that um, for some people it does have to be, you know, complete sobriety. And so, anyway, I I, I just don't, you know, I, I in other words, when I was at the end of my drinking, I would have heard people saying, oh, you can moderate it. 
um, look at all these people who have moderated it. And that would have, like, kept me drinking for another year because I would have, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. ab- I would have faked it and abused that system and, you know, excused it. And and I did all that. I tried mm-hmm. moderation management and some others. And it was, you know, as long as they allowed me to still drink, then I was going to blow it every time. So, um, so yeah, so I really mm-hmm. encourage people um, who want to drink less to do it earlier rather than later because I think it is, a, you know, a condition that can become chronic. And that's really the point where you don't want to have to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You see, our program uh, takes a slightly different tack. We, we ask people, what works best for you? Does quitting mm-hmm. completely work best, or does doing controlled drinking work best? And, you know, we suggest, uh, you know, all of our 17 elements are optional. None of them are required, but, you know, one of the possibilities that you can do is to do a period of abstinence, say take a month with no drinking, see how it feels. You don't have to do that if you don't want to, but it's a lot of people do it. They try it out, see how a month with no drinking feels. Another possibility people can do is track, you know, keep charts of all their drinks, track what they drink every single day, write it down religiously, measure them so you know their standard drinks. uh, you know, people can write out a plan, say, I'm going to drink this day, not drink that day. And, you know, you can try the various things, see how they work. You know, a lot of people say after they do a period of abstinence for 30 days, they say, I like that a lot better than when I was trying to control my drinking. It was easier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we say, go with the yeah, one that works absolutely. best because everyone's different. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I exhausted options like that before I got sober. (laughs) I really, really, really wanted to still drink um, and in moderation or in normal amounts. And, uh, you know, part of what convinced me not to drink ever again was um, the fact that I, you know, could not, you know, could not make those kind of choices. I tried charting my drinks, and that was an exercise in absurdity. But uh, the end of the and, and uh, I, you know, I tried a lot of different things that just, you know, for me, I would eventually say, "Oh, screw it," and just get drunk. And so, yeah. So I, again, I just want to be careful about. I don't want people to think that. Everyone can do that uh, to make mm-hmm. the choice to stop. Um, I mean, everyone can make the choice to stop, of course, but um, not everyone can make the choice to continue drinking and not still have a problem with alcohol, like me. Would you a say? It, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, would you say, in your in your opinion, that quitting completely for you is easier than trying to control it? Absolutely, yes. That's in fact, thank you. That's exactly how I would put it. It's much easier, much easier. Um, now, how, don't get me wrong. The first year was pure <laughs> hell, but now it's easier. <laughs> that's that's how we encourage people to look at it, because you know, so often if you throw this word "can't" at people and say you can't drink, they say, "Oh yes, I can." Mm-hmm. You know, you are actually doing something confrontational, and you're eliciting. The opposite reaction, uh, you know, because this is what confrontation does. So instead of saying, you can't, 
we say, what works best for you? Give it a try. Mm-hmm. Give it a try not drinking for a while. And, you know, people amazingly find, you know, when they don't have those confrontational words thrown at them, they find it easier to make good decisions. And actually, I think they find it easier to make the decision to quit when they're saying, offered the option. You can quit if you want to. It's your choice. Um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's right. I think we have a lot of power over these things. And, uh, you know, that's, again, in 12-step, that's why you get applauded on your anniversary, <laughs> you know, um, because you have exercised that control for, for however long. Um, at least in my view, I think that's what's going on there, even if I don't always believe that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, to me, it's very powerful to say that I choose to do this um, and and that it has improved my life. I also want to, but I also want to be clear that when I went to 12 Steps AA uh, initially after mm-hmm. that first three months, um, it was amazing, and 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 they, it was an epiphany. I was um, totally amoral. I just didn't have a true north, and I, you know, was shady, and I I lie as often as I opened my mouth, and um, really didn't have a great sense of right and wrong. And I think that that was a crucial thing that um, a twelve-step group gave me. I, I had a really hard time working the actual steps, but listening to mm-hmm. other people mm-hmm. talk and um, being in those meetings actually, for me, made me realize as I watched a bunch of adults, you know, kind of talk about how they should react. And, and it just made me realize that I had not been leading a very examined life <laughs> and that mm-hmm. um, I needed to, and that I needed to have some values that I could stick by. Um, you know, like not putting myself in dangerous situations because I'm worth not doing that. And mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so for me, uh, especially with the book, I did not um, want to write uh, about sobriety in the absence of the 12-step program because that would feel like lying because to me the 12-step mm-hmm, program mm-hmm. really brought home to me uh, the kind of before and after of, of my life. Um, and... And uh, and so yeah, it was incredibly, incredibly helpful. And you know, I also haven't been to a meeting in at least a year, <laughs> so it was really helpful. I feel like I got what I needed from it. <laughs> yeah, some people think that you can't graduate from there. Actually, I kind of uh, always was getting that message that if you ever leave, you'll die. But yeah, did, did I, you get I, that I have message? also heard that. Absolutely. There is a book, and that's the thing is if you read the literature, it's nowhere in the literature. Literature is actually really open and, and wonderful. The steps are only suggestions, you know, take what you need, leave the rest. Like, it's a, it's it's really clever and well done, and and I think one of America's greatest achievements was Bill Wilson. Uh, yeah, however, the culture... Uh, of the rooms is very different than the literature and the culture says to me these aren't steps these are ironclad laws and uh, Mm -hmm. if you leave you will relapse and you know we'll save you a seat and but there's this sense of imminent failure um, that 
I just I didn't feel good about a lot of, a lot of the cultural kind of aspects, social aspects of it um, were really what I think keep me away, as opposed to uh, the literature itself, because I think that um, if you if you look at uh, kind of the intention behind. Uh, Bill Wilson, he was a, a groovy du- a dude, and and you know having these like informal chat sessions to try to keep himself sober and following some basic guidelines, um, it, it's it's wonderful. And for a long time before science decided to actually explore addiction, that was all we had. So um, I, I think it's great, and it saved a lot of people, including my father. And um, I, I will just always have nothing but gratitude for the program. Having said that, I, again, the social atmosphere, um, I felt um, judged a lot, I guess. For <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the quality now, addition, of my sobriety. Mm-hmm. Now, in addition to the AA Big Book, did you also read the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions or Pass It On or some of the other books that are official AA literature? Um, I have, I read is um, came to believe officially a literature. I remember reading that and having <laughs> real trouble with that. Um, yeah, I, I have read the Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions, and you know, I I still really can't get um, past the second step. I can acknowledge I have a problem with alcohol, but I can't acknowledge that there's you know a, a higher power. I I, I am an agnostic and. And, and probably agnostic, you know, I don't know what mm-hmm. I don't know. And, and, uh, and I'm really comfortable with that. And, um, it, it, you know, to me, that is kind of makes intellectual sense. Now, of course, someone from AA would say it's a spiritual program, not an intellectual program. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> for me, um, that would mean that I would be forcing myself into a spirituality that didn't um, come innately, feel natural, or even make sense to me. So I I couldn't do uh, those aspects of it. But again, I took what I needed and I left the rest. Like I didn't pray, but you know what? I meditated and that was really good for me. So I um, I really took them at the steps as suggestions and I looked at the traditions, the traditions that are for some people and they can make that their tradition and I don't have to. So um, I took a really, I guess, far left approach <laughs> to uh, to what was, in many ways, an ultra orthodox, you know, group. But um, uh, you know, it's it's they were also amazing. And I like I say, if you look at a lot of the literature, there's there are real gems in there. There are real insights, and um, I think it's good. You know, it would be good reading for anyone, not just addicts. I mean, I'm. Uh, I always find myself saying some little anecdote from AA literature and to my husband and and it being like, ugh, that's what he needed to hear. And he's not an addict, you know. <laughs> like I think sometimes good <laughs> advice is good advice across the board. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I do think uh, by the time Bill got around to writing 12 Steps and 12 Traditions in the 1950s, he was... <clears throat> He was getting pretty rigid because uh, he says in there, you know, the 12 steps are merely suggestions, but any alcoholic who fails to work these 12 steps to the best of their ability surely signs their own death warrant. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> like, <laughs> I that's not a suggestion agree that anymore. That's rigid. 
Yeah, but at the end of his life, he he loosened up quite a bit. So you're right, in the 50s, that was completely rigid. But he um, he had a few, I think break wasn't, you know, AA in general wasn't evolving. It was staying in that rigid format. And I think he saw its evolution as um, a good thing. And so, and he was very open to science and stuff like that. So I, I think that, if, you know, if, if you look towards the end of his life, he was starting to open up more. And uh, anyway, but but sure, the, some of the uh, 1950s literature is going to be really strict. You know, one thing that you were mentioning, and this is one point where I really had a hard time, too, because when I was a drinker, actually my whole life, I've been an extremely honest person. In fact, uh, tactless is a good way to describe it, too. Mm-hmm. You know, I was one of these pathological truth tellers that didn't know when <laughs> to keep my mouth shut, you know. So the, the whole thing, you know, when I was in treatment, because I went through treatment twice, and I've talked about this before, and, uh, you know, and when people were saying, to me, you have to admit that you're a pathological liar, we're all pathological liars, said, that's not true. I'm a pathological truth teller. It's like, oh, no, we're all alike. We're all identical. We're all the same. You have to admit it or else you'll never. It's like, why are you trying to make me something I'm not? I've never been this way. You know, when I was big drunk, you know, if you ask me, how much did you drink last night? I'd say, oh, fifth whiskey. Um, (laughs) I wasn't hiding anything. No, I wasn't uh, doing any sneaking around. You know, I was completely open all the time. It was just consuming huge amounts, but I wasn't getting around about it. Yeah, I mean, again, I see that as kind of some of the corrupted social culture around it, um, where there is this strict adherence to everything, and um, and you know what? If that's working for you, then by all means, don't stop doing it. But... Um, for me, it, it didn't make sense, kind of like what you're saying with the character defects. Um, you know, there was a point where I felt kind of healed. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, like, I didn't actually need to continue to go week after week to talk about um, the fact that, you know, now it's been nine years that, you know, I haven't had a drink. I, I feel like it was actually making, I think you said something like this earlier, it was actually making alcohol a bigger part of my life than it needed to be at one point. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I do feel like I, I graduated. <laughs> now, I want to talk about Hunter Thompson a little bit because I, I was reading your Hunter Thompson fantasy, but, you know, I loved Hunter's early stuff. Of course, he's a big role model for me as well as for you. But, you know, his early books, Hell's Angels, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, they're wonderful. But when I started reading his later stuff, it was like it was all self-plagiarism, and it was, it was crap. I felt like his mind just froze up from too much coke and alcohol, and he didn't really produce anything, you know, after the first uh, handful of books. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that's another thing that people need to consider when they're, you know, drinking too much or using too many drugs is that they are, there can be long-term jam- damage. Now, look, the brain is an incredible organ, and, and it definitely can self-repair, and a lot of people like yourself, you know, 
can come to a point where they're not triggered um, physically anymore. And, uh, you know, that's great. But uh, I, I think that, um, oh, I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking about, Hunter's uh, right, latter Hunter, years? Right, I think that, yeah, I think that it's important to recognize that a lot of these substances do have long-term effects. And, you know, you may not be the same person going in as you are coming out. And so, again, taking a step back and reflecting on how much you're using early really becomes important because you don't want to set yourself up for, you know, a lifetime of brain damage. And and that is very real and happens. And, and yeah, and I think that's also part of what Hunter, to me, also... Um, I, I agree. I, I, I'm a fan of the early work. Um, but Hunter, to me, w- was not just a writer. It was a lifestyle. And I thought that I could do all those drugs and be like Hunter and still write. And you know what? I couldn't. He could, but mm-hmm. I couldn't. <laughs> and you know what? He might have done it longer if he had slowed down. Uh, and so I, I don't think that actually, like, throwing up this blaze of glory and writing for and loving in Las Vegas is, you know, I think I would have rather lost that book to the world for five more um, really good ones, you know, later on. Um, so, you know, there's a problem there. People think that they're only, like, creative or something. They only have access to certain parts of their soul when they're... Um, inebriated and I think that actually you know you haven't gained insight so you're probably probably losing insight by the second so um, mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. These, again these are powerful substances and um, and I just think that people need to take them really much more seriously than we as a society do well when you're in a constant state of intoxication like that you just your brain's not functioning I mean, Hunter, you know, you read about his his uh, life, his last uh, 20, 30 years, whatever it was. You know, he never stopped. It was all day long, booze and coke, booze and coke, booze and coke, booze and coke. Yeah. You know, coke to keep you awake to drink more so, booze, so, to so. calm you down to take more coke. <laughs> right. And he was, and he was generally an, only awake at night and... Um, you know, on Owl Farm, kind of not leaving and, you know, becoming a recluse with a lot of visitors. So it's not really a recluse if you have a lot of visitors, but that's what was happening. And it wasn't healthy. And I think that people loved him so much, um, myself included, that they were, they took it all as part of his, you know, incredibly edgy, cool story and didn't look at it as, a sad way to go out, uh, cut mm-hmm. off from the world uh, in more ways mm-hmm. than one. Mm-hmm. Well, I just got, I mean, I got turned off because, well, I knew Hunter through his writing, of course. And, you know, I read the early books, uh, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, The Hell's Angels. They were all so fucking brilliant, you know. And then I saw he had all these other books, and I'm like, I'm going to read everything he ever wrote. And they just got worse and worse and worse. (laughs) They're totally unreadable. I mean, they're just boring. And, like, 
he even says, uh, you know, I'm ripping off this uh, thing that I wrote, you know, you know, when I was uh, 19 years old or whatever it was, you know, the rum mm-hmm. diary. Thing. He says, right. yeah, I wrote well, he stopped having experiences. Angels. You know, I mean, that's <laughs> what addiction does to you is, you know, suddenly you're stuck in your, you know, house in the woods in Aspen and it, 20 years go by and you haven't left your house. Like, there's nothing to write about if that's your, you know, world. And, uh, you know, him trying to comment on, uh, you know, pop culture or political culture um, in his later years, it was farcical because he was not engaged with the world. And so he didn't seem like an honest broker. Um, whereas when he was young and having all these experiences, um, it was an, an amazing thing to go on those wild rides with him. Uh, but that, you know, those rides don't last. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we have, uh, we have about seven minutes left here. One thing we didn't touch on yet was uh, maintenance therapy, buprenorphine. I saw that you had written an article about uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and, uh, you know, some people in 12-step programs are extremely against maintenance therapy, but I saw that you were very favorable. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's another problem with the social culture of 12-steps, um, that there is a kind of like knee-jerk reaction to any other solution. And I think that's a shame because science, especially in the last 5, 10 years, has exploded um, you know, our imaging technology is incredible, and also more and more scientists are working on addiction in general. Uh, so you have some amazing drugs um, that can, I think, really be helpful to a lot of addicts. And to to say that, you know, you have to be, you know, in an abstinence-only, you know, program when your brain is wild with the desire is just foolish. I mean, that's how a person's going to relapse and possibly die. And I think that particularly with someone like Philip Seymour Hoffman, who had been doing a lot of drugs and then went to a 10-day detox, that was like resetting his brain at zero. So he was craving it all the more. Perhaps if he hadn't Mm -hmm. done the detox but had been on a maintenance therapy, he would have been getting enough so that he could examine what was going on, I mean, why he relapsed. So spectacularly, um, and unfortunately, we we lost him. And I mean, I you know, I feel like uh, Entertainment Weekly had him on the cover, and it said this one hurts. And I just I I think we all kind of felt that way that he was a unique actor and special, and we lost him. And I think that part of that is because he had been conditioned to think that opiates um, had to be stopped cold turkey and crazy opiates in particular are just you know really difficult and if you can use a step down program or maintenance therapy then I I think you should you know (laughs) rather than going Mm -hmm. to the street and looking for heroin um, and and ODing so I'm a big I'm a big proponent of the science Mm -hmm. one of the nice things about uh, New York State and then New York City um, is the the New York State Office of Substance Abuse and whatever it's OAFS. I can't remember everything the initials stand for, but uh, they are introducing uh, um, overdose prevention 
into their treatment programs. All, of, all the state-run programs are going to teach overdose prevention. Many of them are already doing it. They're going to teach people where to get Narcan, how to use it. They're going to teach people when you're abstinent from opioids, your tolerance drops. If you use mm-hmm. the same amount again as you were using when you entered treatment, it's going to kill right. you. you know, it's going to kill you. Right. It's not those. like alcohol where your tolerance might yeah. remain for a little while. Your tolerance goes back to zero. <laughs> is, uh, it, that drug just behaves differently on the brain than alcohol, and I think it's really important to know that, that you can die. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so, again, these are dangerous substances. We need to take them seriously, and I think that getting people off opiates slowly is um, often necessary, and that maintenance therapy is also often necessary for certain people, especially ones who have really um, been heroin addicts for a long time. That, that mm-hmm. may just be the, you know, the, the, their Zoloft or whatever. It's <laughs> like that might just be their daily pill um, or monthly shot. Um, I, I know that in uh, AA there's a kind of like, oh, well, one magic pill would make me sober. I'd take it and then I'd take two more, ha, 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 because I'm an addict. And I think that that actually really belittles the, the research that's going on and and mm-hmm. it's unfortunate because I think that, honestly, if science and AA got together, it would be really powerful because I think that, again, that kind of sense of true north that I did not have when I was drinking really needed to happen for me and they gave me that and science is not going to give me that kind of morality lesson so I did need both those you know things both science and uh, the 12-step and I think that if they could actually talk to each other instead of um, kind of packing up their toys and going home every time the other is mentioned um, there could there could be real progress because you could reach a lot more addicts Mm -hmm, mm-hmm mm-hmm so there's one last thing I want to mention there, um, and that's so many people in 12-step programs, um, they classify certain drugs as, okay, mainly nicotine in the form of cigarettes and then caffeine. It's like you can smoke a cigarette and nobody says, oh, you relapsed. You took an uh, addictive mind-altering drug, which it is, most addictive mm-hmm. drugs you know. But nobody says, oh, that's a relapse. You, It's like... Cigarettes are sacred, even though right. the biggest killer of all. But, you know, a medication prescribed by a doctor, like buprenorphine, is condemned. Oh, that's a relapse. That's a drug. What, what, right. what is that? But it's not condemned, right, if I, you know, broke my leg or had surgery. Then I can have opiates as prescribed by my doctor. But when I'm, an, you know, an addict struggling with my addiction, I can't take it, you know, opioids to replace my them in my brain. I I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me that, like, there are certain ways that these uses are acceptable and certain ways uh, that they're not. I mean, I think that if you're abusing drugs, that's the unacceptable way. (laughs) If you're listening to your doctor, that's always acceptable, like, always. Um, I don't think that people should disregard their doctors because um, some abstinence-only program, you know, is certain through anecdotal, you know, experience that that is the end-all, be-all. Okay, well, we are running out of time, so I want to thank you for being our guest this evening, Sasha Skoblik. Thanks so much. I had a great time.
Great conversation. Okay. Thanks. Everybody, we'll see you all again next week. So good night, everyone. Night. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.